All right, welcome. My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, whether you're watching online, in this room, we see you in the lobby. If you're new, and I know how it works when people are new. We have people new here all the time, and you checked out our website, and you watched a sermon or two online, and you're asking this question, and it's fair. What is this church about? Like, what does this church really want to see happen? That video is the bullseye, is the end goal. Uh, it's what we're aiming at. It's transformed and changed lives. I know and love John Richardson. I've known him for five years. And by the way, if you do come to our weekender, I don't make people stand anymore, okay? <laughs> we had a few awkward moments and I stopped doing that. Um, so uh, guys, it, but here's what I remember about John. Uh, John did, he told you a couple stories there. I remember he came out one time and he looked at me after he came out of one of the services and he said, who is the oldest person to ever get baptized in this church? I'm looking at him going, I think you're late 50s. You know what so I'm thinking to myself? And I'm like, not you. <laughs> I said, actually, we've already baptized people in their 70s, guys. That's part of the story. We just thank God that we have actually seen. I remember I got a phone call from a guy. I thought, why is this guy calling me? He's in his 70s. He says, Pastor Kyle, I've been coming to church. I've actually been in church my whole life. He said, I realized recently that I have been religiously lost. I've been in church, but I've not been in Christ, and I need to get baptized. So we thank God for the different things that we're seeing happen. Let me just tell you about our weekender. If you've been around for a while, you hear me talk about this all the time. Our weekender is the way that you get connected to uh, meaningfully connected to the life of our church. What you heard in the story of John Richardson is he basically said, my life didn't really, I was a Christian, but my life didn't really change. I really wasn't transformed. I really didn't grow until I got connected to community. So on October 22nd and October 23rd, we're having our second to last weekender of 2021. So you wanna sign up if you've not been, uh, if you've not gotten connected yet. And then finally, if you can look around here, it's incredibly packed. I wanna remind everyone that we do have a Saturday night service at five o'clock. So if you are able, if, you're, if you call Two Cities Home and you're able to come on a Saturday night to free up more space on Sundays, we'd appreciate that. All right, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter eight. If you're new or you've been coming around just for a little bit, you may go, well, how do we do things around here? We, fairly simple. I tell you all the time, I went to public high school. Okay, I have to keep things very simple for myself. Um, uh, we, we, uh, we walked through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, word by word. And, and we found ourselves in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, it's an interesting book because the Corinthian church is the most messed up, sinful church in the Bible. So if you showed up today, I don't know your story, right? But in a room this size, right? We've all had, we all have good weeks. Many of us have bad weeks. So if you showed up today and go, man, I have really messed up. I feel really broken. I feel really sinful. I feel really awkward being in church. Welcome, you came to the right place. Uh, what we see in, in scripture is that before we look like Jesus, we look like people who need Jesus, right? It's like, we'd all like to look like Jesus. We'd like to be the godliest version of ourselves. But before we look like Jesus, we often, in many areas of our life, we look like people who need Jesus. And so what Paul does, Paul's a good pastor, and he's writing to this church, dealing with all their pains, all their problems, all their pressures, all their temptations, all their tests, all their trials. He's writing to them. And if you look, if you look at me at chapter, uh, we're going to cover the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses. If you look at me at verse 1 of chapter 8, let's just look at the first two words. He says, now concerning... So let's stop talking about that for a second. Here's what Paul's doing. Paul's a good pastor. He cares about his people. And he's writing a letter in response to one of the letters they wrote him. Now follow this. I know it's Sunday morning, okay? But think with me for a second. Here's what happened. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. We don't have that letter. That was actually 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. I know it hurts your head, doesn't it? Just a little bit. Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. It's the second letter Paul wrote. In between the first letter he wrote that we don't have and the letter that we do have that we're studying, they wrote him a letter. And they asked him a bunch of questions. And in chapter seven, Pastor Stephen did a great job last week. In chapter seven, Paul starts answering the questions. He goes, guys, in the things that you wrote me about, concerning the things you wrote me about, and guess what the first thing they were asking him about? 
sex, marriage, singleness, remarriage. So chapter 7, Paul goes, guys, I wrote about that. Then in chapter 8, Paul deals with another topic. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. We're not even going to read the whole verse. I want you to see what we're talking about today. He says this, now concerning food, or we might say literally it's meat, now concerning meat offered, or we could say sacrifice, now concerning food offered to idols. That's what chapter 8 is about. Food, sacrifice, idols. And some of you go, oh, thank God. A sin I don't struggle with. <laughs> some of you are like, I come here and I just, I'm convicted. We talk about you know, sexual sin, I feel convicted. We talk about unforgiveness, I feel convicted. We talk about a love of money, I feel convicted. We talk about circumstantial anxiety, I feel convicted. We talk about bitterness, I feel convicted. I'm grateful for a sermon on meat sacrifice titles because I don't struggle with that, right? You're like, I go and I look for non-GMO. I, I look for organic. I don't look if the FDA said, is this demon meat or not? You know, that's not a concern of mine. Well, so you go, Kyle, Kyle, thank you for just a comfortable sermon where I don't need to feel convicted. And I would say, hold on one moment, okay? <laughs> um, because what, what, let me give you the background on this, and let me give you the context. Here's what was happening, and it's helpful. Before we can know what something means, and this is a good, anytime you read the Bible, you need to know what did it mean, because that's ultimately what's, by principle, by implication and application, that's what it's going to mean now. What it meant is what it's going to mean. So here's what was happening. In Corinth, and actually in a lot of places, there's these pagan temples. So if you read your New Testament, you're like, why does Paul keep talking about meat sacrifice idols? Like, this, is, this sounds like a bigger deal. Like, what, what's going on? Here's what happened. There are all these temples, and these temples, by the way, were also event centers. They would hold birthday parties. They would hold funerals. They would hold weddings. They would hold business parties, okay? And uh, what would happen is, is people would go to these pagan temples with these sacrifices, and it was their way that they worshiped false gods. And it was a financial thing for them, right? It's like, well, here's a goat, and this goat cost me you know, 200 bucks, and I'm going to sacrifice it. Now, here's where this gets real practical. They would go, and the pagan priest would say, thank you, thank you for the 200 bucks, whatever it is. He'd say, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to sacrifice it. Okay, now I take some of the meat for me and my family. That's what priests did. Great, this is how I provide, one of the ways I provide for my family. And then he'd say, hey, as, as to remember this and to remember your sacrifice, I want you to take some back to your family. So the priest and the worshiper would say, that's great. But then there'd be a lot of meat left over. And the pagan temples were not stupid. They said, we should sell this meat. In fact, what it, every pagan temple was also a butcher shop and a marketplace. And here's what else is really interesting. It was the cheapest meat you could get. Because they needed to sell it quickly. They were doing lots of sacrifices. Now, a lot of us today, were spoiled. We're eating meat two, three, four times a day. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we, we eat a lot of meat. Back then, they didn't. Back then, it was very, very expensive. Back then, only the rich could eat meat. And so what would happen is they would sell this meat at a discount. Now, there was a fight. I know this is hard to believe, Christians debating and fighting with each other. It, it actually happened back then. Um, and these Christians are debating with each other over whether or not they can eat this meat. And th th I'm going to try to kind of, because this is a very confusing passage, and I'm going to unpack it for us. Um, but let me explain before we read it all what's happening here. There's two groups of people in the church. It's an oversimplification, but this was basically what's happening. There was two groups of people. There was the people that Paul calls the strong. And they basically said, guys, it's not a huge deal to eat this meat. We know who God is. In fact, they, like, guys, they were very missional. Hey, guys, we've got to reach people for Christ. If my business company has an event there, if I'm going to go celebrate my neighbor's birthday party there, if I'm going to go there, guys, I'm going to eat the meat. I know idols aren't real. I know God is king. I know God actually created the meat. I know that meat is a gift. I can eat it. And that was the strong. On the other hand, there was these people that Paul calls the weak. Now, hear me out. It's not a sin to have a weak conscience. We're going to talk about this today. But they were weak, and they basically said some version of this. We can't 
We can't eat the meat. Guys, it's sacrifice to idols. Do you know what idols are? And in fact, some of the, if you read, if you read what ha- was happening there, some of the people go, guys, I, I used to worship that false god and it was ruining my life. My parents still worship that false god. I, I, this is confusing. I follow Christ now and I can't eat this meat. And Paul is going to come together and he's going to answer their questions. And let me just give you like one or two sentences to sum it all up because I don't want us to get lost in the weeds here. Paul's going to say two things today. Number one, every individual should use their conscience to guide their conduct. That's a very important principle. We'll talk about what your conscience is. Simply, it's either a voice or a feeling that tells you what not to do. Basically, everybody says they have a conscience. If you don't have a conscience, you're a sociopath. (laughs) You're a psychopath. Everybody has a conscience. Now, our conscience, now we're going to get into this. People, People have different consciences, and people's consciences can get destroyed and defiled, and ruined, and seared, and weak, and overly sensitive, or unsensitive. But Paul, in all of scripture, would say the best goal, the best plan is to follow your conscience. And then he would say, so that's it. That's, that's part one, and Paul's gonna say that. That's Paul's answer to lots of problems. Each individual Christian follow his or her individual conscience. We'll talk about that. Number two, he says, okay, but in community, each Christian needs to realize that love limits their liberties. There's a lot of things that you can do that you probably shouldn't do around certain people because of their conscience, not your conscience. And so I want us to look at this in detail today. So we're going to have to do a little bit of this. This is a different sermon, okay? This is a put your thinking cap on sermon a little bit today. Uh, and, and we're going to do some biblical and systematic theology. But, but most people have told me after last night and this morning, they've never heard a sermon on this. I mean, wh- how would you hear a sermon on the Christian conscience in community and how it works itself out, unless you're walking through 1 Corinthians 8 or Romans 14. That's the only two places in Scripture that it talks about this at length. So let me give you some background. First of all, there are, four, there are three types of actions in the Bible. This is good to know, and it's very, very simple. There are things that are commanded, there are things that are forbidden, and there are things that are neither commanded or forbidden. And you go, well, that's simple. Yep. <laughs> Fairly simple. Uh, and by the way, part of what I want to do today is I want to set you free. Some of you are not free. Some of you have a very weak conscience, and it's okay. It's not a sin to have a weak conscience. And, and some of you, it's all about what you can't do, or it's all about what you shouldn't do, or it's all about what you have to do. It's, it's all about what you always must do or never must do. And I want to set you free from Scripture. Um, but what, what he says is there are things that are commanded, things that are, that are forbidden, things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. So let's talk about that. Things that are commanded. What is positively commanded for us to do in Scripture? Well, pray, love God, love our neighbor, love our spouse, make disciples, share our faith. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of things that we would say, okay, I've got a Bible verse, and clearly in Scripture, I'm commanded to do this. There are things that are forbidden. I mean, most of the Ten Commandments are just things that are forbidden. You might read it, you go, okay, no idols. Makes sense, okay. Uh, Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Okay, all right, great. So there are things that are commanded. There are things that are forbidden. Then there are things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. Here's what theologians call this. Issues of indifference. Issues in which there is Christian liberty. It's the gray. And can we just be honest? In Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, missions-minded churches like ours, we don't like gray, right? We like black, we like white, we like yes, we like no, we like right, we like wrong. And he's like, look, guys, there's a lot of gray Issues of indifference. And so what do you do in the gray? There's two answers to that. And this is a whole other sermon, but 
But what you do in the gray is you use your conscience and wise counsel. Your conscience tells you what not to do. That's what most people say that their conscience does not tell them what to do. It just says, stop, don't do that. It's like, well, that's half the battle. What do I do? Well, that's wisdom and that's community. It's wise counsel. So in issues of gray, which is going to be a lot of your life, what do you do when you start making lots of money? Issue of indifference. Yes, give, save, lives the biblical principle. What do you do? (laughs) You listen to your conscience. You get in a good community and you ask for wisdom. So what are the issues of indifference today? I mean, I, this is a huge issue, guys. This is such a big issue that he talks about it in chapter one, and I'm not gonna re-preach that chapter. And then he talks about it in 1 Corinthians one, and then he talks about it again in chapter eight, and then he talks about it again in chapter 10. This idea of don't be divided and be unified. So I'm gonna try to talk about it a little bit differently. Let me give you a couple issues of indifference. What can we do with our body as Christians? So, you know, now we know the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But here's what I mean by that. Some people go, can I get a tattoo? Some people go, you can't get a tattoo. There's a verse in the Old Testament about pagans and tattoos, and you can't get a tattoo. And then there's other people who go, in Revelation 19, Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh. It says, Lord of lords and King of kings. So Jesus has a tattoo. I think I can get a tattoo. <laughs> there, are, there are people who say, what do I do? They go, what do I do? People, what can I do with my body? Christians, you know how many Christians have fought over, can Christians dance or not? Whenever, whenever someone says, can Christians dance? My answer is always, some can and some can't. <laughs> I, would, I would fall into the can't category. Um, I mean, honestly, issues of how you dress, right? I think we'd all agree, okay, modesty. We'd all agree we don't want to make anyone stumble. We'd all agree we want to be above reproach. But we're not all walking around in burkas, right? It's like, okay, so what's the line? Well, I'll tell you what, I did college ministry for years. And you wouldn't believe, the, particularly among the women, the, the arguments that there was and the debates that there were. At, let me give you two of them. Can you wear yoga pants? I mean, this is before Lululemon was cool, okay? <laughs> and that yoga pants, I guess, came out and everyone's like, you can't wear those. Or I can wear those, a huge debate. You know, there was this whole, can you wear a tankini? Some of you, I don't know what that is. You know? What we all agreed on is men should never wear Speedos, ever. I mean, <laughs> we don't have a verse, but we're just certain of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's issues of that. There's issues of consumption, right? So people, we talk about alcohol. That's a classic one. Um, but tobacco, you know, Charles Spurgeon, the f- most famous Baptist preacher of all time. He was the first megachurch pastor of all time. He was in London. He invited a guest speaker and he didn't vet him very well. And the, and the guest speaker got up and he preached a whole sermon on the sinfulness of tobacco. Well, Charles Spurgeon loved to smoke. And so Charles Spurgeon got up afterwards and said, I enjoy a cigar daily to the glory of God. <laughs> and, and someone asked him, well, Charles, when, when do you know that you're smoking too much? He goes, if you see me smoking two cigars at the same time, I'm smoking too much. <laughs> but there's issues of consumption, right? What do we watch? There's issues for some of us as you get older, right? It's like when you start having kids, there's issues of how do you parent? What do you do about sleepovers? I mean, last night I said the word sleepover and there was a lady who gasped. <gasps> I'm, I'm not sure why. <laughs> I'm not sure on what end. But what do you do about sleepovers? What do you do about social media? What do you do about cell phones? What do you do about streaming services? What do you do about education? And you know what the answer is? Really what the answer should be for all of us is we're wrestling with this. What do you do about luxuries? 
right? When people don't have a lot of money, they know what everyone should do about luxuries. Not have any, right? <laughs> That's what people who don't have a lot of money say. Uh, then people who have a lot of money say, well, hold on a second. And then you'd be in a wrestle. Can I have a second home? Can I have a boat? Can I be a member of a country club? And I've said this before. If you own a boat or a member of a country club, I want to talk to you after service. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Um, but I literally, literally in the last month, I had, this is, this is how the conscience works. Literally in the last month, I had a conversation with someone who they just joined a country club and they were super excited. They're like, hey, we can afford it. It's not a big deal. It's a mission field. It's a very dark place. I'm very, very excited about ministering there. Clear conscience, excited about being a member of a country club. I had literally had a conversation with somebody else. Hey, I just stopped being a member of a country club. Why? Because I got kids and it's it taken up too much of my time and I'm, too much of my money is going there and it's just not the right thing. Okay, great. So two, I wouldn't say one's more mature than the other. I would say they're both trying to live out their conscience in issues of luxury and issues of liberty. And so what I want to show you is, is what Paul gets at next. Look, so we, <laughs> we'll have to pick up the pace. We've done one, verse 1A. Okay, okay. Verse, <laughs> verse 1A, B. Okay, um, let's, let's look here. He says this, now concerning food offered idols, so that's the context. And I showed you how, how it hits us today. He says this, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What, what he basically says is when you're living in community, there's a tension between knowledge and love. We know this. There's a tension. Jesus Christ comes and he's full of grace and truth. This is why at our church, we summarize our whole discipleship philosophy as open Bible, open life. What is open Bible? Knowledge. What is open life? Love. And you need both. He says this, verse two. If anyone imagines that he knows something, so thinks he knows something completely, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So basically he says, listen, um, not, the temptation in knowledge is to make somebody proud and to puff them up. And so one of the ways that you, and it's not easy, but one of the ways you stay humble, even as you learn a lot of things, is you always, this is a good principle to live by, uh, what I don't know is always more important than what I know. And you're right, we don't know everything. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a little bit of you and a lot of everything else. <laughs> So you, there's a lot that you don't know. So what, what's gonna, and basically what Paul's basically saying here, let me say it a different way. He's saying, guys, it's not as much about being right as much as it is about sustaining the relationship. Right is, I have the knowledge, right? Paul's actually gonna go, there is a right answer here. He's gonna go, guys, the strong get it. You can eat the meat. That's the answer. But he's gonna get there by making us think about a lot of different things. And he's gonna focus, if you look at verse three, he's gonna focus on love. Here's what he says in verse three. He says, but if anyone loves God, so Paul's always talking about love. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And by the way, to be known by God is the deepest idea of being loved by God. And here's what he's saying, that ultimately what's gonna motivate us, love li limiting liberty, what's gonna motivate us to live together in an understanding way, what's gonna motivate us to lay down our rights for one another is love. And here's what we know. We know that we will do more for love than we will do for the law, right? God motivates us three ways primarily. He motivates us through rewards, Wow, that's exciting. I, I could, you know, the rewards in heaven. He motivates us by fear. A healthy fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he motivates us by love, all three of those. But the primary motivation is love. Why? Because you will do more for love than you will for the law. I'll give you an example. Every parent knows this. You, you, know, you have a 13-year-old, you have a 14-year-old, you have a 15-year-old boy, and you're trying to buy law <laughs> or buy reward or buy fear or buy something. You're trying to get him to wear deodorant. <laughs> right? and have, one, or have two eyebrows instead of one, you know? And to, to, ha to buy shoes that have laces, and, and to wear clothes that fit, and to not play video games all day, and to have a job, and you just, you try to reward them, and you try to encourage them, and you ground them, and you, whatever, you know that. And then all of a sudden, one day, he's 15, and he sees some beautiful girl he likes. 
and he falls in love. And he finds deodorant. <laughs> and he gets a job. And he finds some clothes that fit. And he learns some social skills. It's, it's unbelievable. We all know this, that you will do so much for love that you would never do for law. So Paul's basically gonna say, guys, listen, here's what we need. We need to not just be right, we need to have a relationship. We need to be full of grace and truth. We need, to, we need to have that tension, right? We talk here about living in the tension of all that scripture says. But if you look, he's gonna tell us in verses four through six um, the knowledge that we need. So if you look at verses four through six, Paul's gonna say, and I'll tell you what they are and then we'll read them. He's gonna say there's three basic things you need to know. Like you need to know more than this, but you can't know less than this. He's gonna give us basic basement theology. And he's gonna say three things. Idols are foolish, the foolishness of idols, the uniqueness of God, and the goodness of creation. Those are the three things. Now, and let me show you these. He, he's gonna say, this is what you need to know if you're going to be able to live free, if your conscience is gonna be correctly informed. Um, so let's look at verse four. He says, therefore, so after I talked about love and knowledge, therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So I'm not gonna talk to you a lot about idolatry because if you come back next week, we're, chapter 10 talks about idolatry and temptation at length. We'll probably, I think, probably dive more into idolatry next week. A couple things I want you to know about an idol. An idol is a good thing that you make a God thing. An idol is something in creation that you treat like creator. An idol is when something in your heart that was a desire becomes a demand. And it's interesting what the Bible says. It says two things that we have to hold in tension about idols. On one level, it says they are powerless and useless. And on the other hand, it says they are powerful. They will destroy you and they will turn you into something that you don't want to be. That's, in fact, if you, one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is a story God's, God often will make fun of people to, to prove a point. And God, through a prophet, is making fun of people with, who commit idolatry. He says, here's what you guys do. He says, you cut the tree down. When the tree's down, you take some of the wood and, um, and you make a beautiful idol that you bow down to out of that wood. He says, then you take the rest of the wood and you throw it in the fire and you burn and you cook your food over it. He said, what's going on? You make an idol and then you bow down to it. Yet it will control you. Now, here's what we say. You know that idols, here's how you know an idol is powerless. If you're watching somebody else worship an idol you don't struggle with, right? I'll give you kind of a goofy example from my life. Uh, you should probably know this, since I am your pastor, I have zero temptation to use illegal drugs. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, thank God, but I just don't. So I, I could be around somebody using illegal drugs. I could be around people smoking pot all day. I could be around meth heads. I could be around people doing crack cocaine. It would not tempt me at all. And, and it wouldn't, and, and I would actually, I'd feel bad for them. I'd have compassion on them, but I, I, would, I would not understand. It's an idol in their life, right? It, if you are addicted, it has become an idol by definition. You are enslaved to it. You are sacrificing for it. Often you're sacrificing your health or your family or your integrity or whatever, but you're enslaved to it. It's like you can see the foolishness of idolatry when you're not the one worshiping the thing. How many of us have watched somebody like go after some guy or some girl and you're like, oh, he's just a guy and not even that great of a guy. So right? It's just a girl. She's not even that great of a girl. And you just are like full over here. Like you are, you're like under his spell. Right? And that often will happen, especially to single women who they get older and a desire for marriage becomes a demand for marriage. And so somebody becomes an idol in their life. And it's an idol, so they're willing to sacrifice, sacrifice their standards, all of that type of stuff. Sacrifice what they'll do physically. They're willing to sacrifice all of that. And so Paul says, guys, you have to understand an idol is 
powerless, but very powerful. People will do very foolish things for idols. The second thing he says is, guys, you have to understand God. Here's what he says about God. He says, for although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, so that would be the seen and unseen realm, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet there is one God. So he points back to God. In fact, in verse 6, he's quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. It's the most famous Old Testament text in the Old Testament. It's the most Jewish text, and he puts Jesus right at the center of it. Here's what he says. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he basically says, guys, God is unique. Jesus is his son and Lord, and our Lord, his son, our Lord, and creation is good. So he's saying, guys, you actually have too small of a view of God. We need a God that is bigger than our suffering and better than our sin. We've had too small a view of God. And then he says, guys, you're not understanding that creation is a good thing that God created. Um, part of what clears your conscience is you go, is, is, is food a good thing? Yes. You know, is drink a good thing? Yes. Is money a good thing? Yes. Is marriage a good thing? Yes. Is sex a good thing? Yes. It needs to be received as God created it. And so what Christians have to do according to their conscience is they have to go, can I redeem this? Can I reject this? Can I receive this? We've given those categories, and those are so, you will be so freed up if you can go, if you just, and you realize that you're gonna do different things than your neighbor and your Christian brother and sister. So every Halloween, right, there are certain people who go, we have to reject Halloween. Christians, they say, we have to reject Halloween. It's connected to the occult. It's connected to the demonic. You know, I, I can't do it. And then there are other people who say, let's redeem it. What that means is we can't receive it, right? We can't dress inappropriately like, like college girls do and make it an excuse that it's, it's their outfit for, for Halloween. We can't do that. We can't, we can't celebrate death. I mean, death is our enemy. So we can't celebrate death. Okay, but Halloween is the only night of the year my neighbor knocks on my door. And it's the only night of the year I can knock on his door and not feel like a weirdo. So maybe I, there's a way to redeem this and it becomes actually the most evangelistic night of the year. People do the same thing with Christmas, right? There's certain people who go, we gotta reject Christmas. I mean, do you know that Santa and Satan have the same letters? <laughs> no, but on a serious people say something like, they'll say something like, you know, um, we have to reject Christmas because it's hard to keep Christ at the center and, and, and it, it's workspace, it's about being a good person and I can't, you know, a naughty list and I can't do all that. And then, then, there's, then there's a whole other person that says, wait a second, uh, I could engage my kid's imagination, show the generosity of God and make some unique memories. Okay, issue of indifference. Uh, so let me show you, with our time left, I wanna show you what he talks about the conscience. Uh, if you look at me at verses seven, he moves us to the conscience. Here's what he says. He says, however, so he's basically, guys, listen, don't forget, idols are goofy, God is great, creation is good. That's basically the summary. Idols are goofy, you don't need to worship them. God is great, the creation's good. So be, be free, you, Christians should be the freest people. But then he goes this, however, guys, verse seven, however, not, not everybody knows this. Not all possess this biblical knowledge. So he's gonna talk about our conscience. So our conscience, and this is good to know, is informed by two things, your education and your experiences. That's it. So he's gonna say, hey guys, however, not all possess this knowledge. They, their conscience has been educated by other things. And then he says this, but some through former association, so that's experience, through former association with idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. 
But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block, hinders them to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. A couple things. Let's talk about what your conscience is. Your conscience is that which accuses you or excuses you. And here's the most interesting thing about your conscience. It's the first line of defense God has given you. So God gives multiple lines of defense. The first is an internal witness. It's your conscience. The second defense is the family. <laughs> so this is why when a kid goes against his conscience, and he will, the family is there to go, oh, nope, you shouldn't be doing that, right? And then after the family, guess what the third line of defense is? The church. The church steps in and goes, all right, listen, you haven't listened to the family, and you haven't listened to your own conscience. We're going to speak this truth to you. And then the fourth line is the government. Trust me, you don't want them getting involved. <laughs> and that's when the police have to show up. That's when people end up going to jail, right? It's like, who ends up in jail? People who've been breaking their conscience for a long time. No question. And so it's, it's the first line of defense. Now, here's the most, our conscience, and here's what I want you to do today. Here's what I'm asking you to do from Scripture. I'm asking you to consider your conscience. Most people don't want to pay much attention to their conscience. I, I think the reason that most people drink too much is because what drinking does is it quiets the conscience. The conscience, and, and by the way, when you become a Christian, then the Holy Spirit leads your conscience, speaks to your conscience. Well, what happens is, here's the interesting thing about, the, about your conscience. You can actually tell it no. It's the weirdest thing, but we do it all the time. We actually have a conscience that over time we're able to say to it, Shh. I mean, you, we've all done this, right? We've all done this. Some of us have done this in more extremes. Some of us have done this in certain areas of our lives where we have just told our conscience, this is okay. I'm okay. I don't have a problem in this area of my life. Right? We, it's interesting. We'll, you'll, I'll give you an example that we've all had. Um, you don't have to raise your hand, but I know almost all of you have snuck candy into a movie theater before, okay? <laughs> And think about that for a second. When you sneak candy into a movie theater, okay, uh, maybe there's a couple of you who haven't done this, but um, you, have to have a, you have to have a conversation with your conscience. Most of us do. It's like, and the conversation looks like something like this. Like, they thought I was going to buy, did they think I was going to spend $10 for a Snickers bar when I can get one for a dollar? They probably expect me to sneak candy in. They probably know, okay, I'll buy some popcorn, but I'm sneaking the candy in, right? You, this is what we do. It just shows us, we, that's a goofy example, but that's kind of what we have to do. Because we, we're moral, right? The conscience is one of the pointers that, there, that God exists. The conscience is a pointer to your value system. And so we have to have, end up having this, this uh, conversation with our conscience. Now, what Paul says is that there's different types of conscience. Um, and I want, I want to give you the three that are stated in Scripture. Uh, first is the weak conscience. And the weak conscience is the overly sensitive conscience. Paul mentions it four times in this passage. In Romans 14, he does the same thing. The weak conscience tends, think of it this way, the weak conscience is religious in the wooden sense of the word. It's all about rules and regulations and tends to say things like this, you can't or you have to in areas of indifference. In areas where, we, where there's gray, in areas where we don't have a Bible verse, they say you have to or you can't. You can't drink. You can't smoke. You can't get a tattoo. It's, that's, 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 the, that's the weaker brother. And Paul again says, listen, it's not a sin to be a weaker brother. He's, he's saying, listen, based on your experiences and your lack of education, that's not to insult somebody, your lack of education in the scriptures. Maybe you've been very educated somewhere else. 
He said, this is what happens. He says, over here, the other danger, 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, is the seared conscience. So the weak conscience is over there, and it's overly sensitive. Um, the seared conscience is insensitive. In, it be, actually becomes inactive because it's been ignored. And this happens over time. This can happen, unfortunately, even to a Christian who over time keeps saying no. But especially, you can, if that one's religious, this one is rebellious. It's the rebellious conscience. Here's why this is a particularly scary one, because you don't want to, Paul's going to say, we'll get this in a minute, that you should never go against your own conscience. Why? Because all of a sudden your conscience will stop speaking to you in areas of your life that you're going to need it. And just trust me, I mean, I, I don't mean to make this about me, but I have had to make so many decisions oh, with groups, with other people, but so many decisions about this church over the last 18 months with all the craziness that I've had to have a clear conscience constantly. I've had to go back and go, all right, I got to trust. I'm informed by scripture. I'm led by my conscience. I'm not going to do anything that I don't think I should do. I'm informed by scripture. The seared conscience becomes inactive. It becomes ignored. And this is where people end up in my office or your office or somewhere or in your dining room or kitchen table and they end up sharing you things that are just horrible. And they, they're trying to figure out themselves. I mean, you've ha I've had people go, I don't know how I ended up looking at this type of pornography. I don't know. I don't know how I ended up drinking every night this much. And we know the answer. In fact, we, they say that almost every alcoholic is also a pathological liar. It's an interesting thing to think about. Because you basically have to lie to yourself and lie to everybody around you that you have a problem and that you drink too much. So you have a seared conscience. So if you ever want to know, how do people get, right? The famous story of Ted Bundy, okay? Classic story of, I was looking at Playboys, this is what he said, uh, and then I was, had girlfriends, and then I had prostitutes, and then I wanted more. And so he becomes a, a rapist and a killer. I mean, extreme version, I know. But what did he do? For a long time, he said no to his conscience again and again and again. So there's the, there's the religious conscience, there's the rebellious conscience, and in the middle, he said, is the strong conscience. And in Romans 14, Paul's humble. He goes, and he goes I have a strong conscience. A strong conscience is one who understands who, through experience and through education of the scriptures, they understand the freedoms that they have in the gray area. The, the strong person doesn't necessarily the person who drinks, but it's the person who realizes you could drink or not drink in moderation. The strong person is not the person who has tattoos, but realizes you could have one or you could not have one. The strong person is one who realizes there's multiple ways to educate a child. It's rooted in these different things. And so uh, let me show you how this happens. So um, there, there's the two things I've told you. There's experience and there's education. So I was talking to a lady after one of the services last night, or after, after the service last night. She came up to me and she said, I got to Bob Jones University. This was a couple decades ago. She goes, I went to Bob Jones University, very conservative university. She said, I get to Bob Jones. And this is going to sound goofy to many of us, but this is what she said. She said, and there were women wearing pants. And, you know, you want to go, I, and? <laughs> uh, she goes, I was taught since I was a young girl that you could only wear skirts. He said, so she said, so I get to Bob Jones and I meet all these great women. And they're really, really godly. And I'm wrestling with it, she said. She said, I, I, I think you can't. You can't wear pants and be a godly woman. Because of the experience she had in her religious home. She said, so what I did, and this is what you should do. She said, so I went and I studied the scriptures with some friends. And we looked at it, and I realized there's no verse on this. There's principles of modesty, like we've talked about earlier. She said, so what happened, and this is what the scripture tells us to do, to calibrate our conscience to the canon of scripture. That's what we do. We, we, have, to, we have to recalibrate our conscience. So that would be an overly sensitive conscience based on experience and education. There was a guy when I was at Elon as a student. 
Um, there was a, I was trying to do ministry to this brand new freshman. He was this good looking, cool guy named Scott from New Jersey. I just, he was just, he was such a great guy. Uh, not a believer, not from a Christian family at all. And I remember meeting him and I'm about to show the gospel to him and build a relationship with him. And, and, uh, and in the first week we meet him, he starts telling me and my roommate, who my roommate was a Christian, we we're trying to reach out to him. He says, guys, my mom got me this bracelet and this necklace. Uh, my mom and dad did. They got me this bracelet and this necklace to remind me uh, to have protected sex when I'm having lots of sex in college. And I thought, whoa. Okay, so the, you came from a family where the last thing your parents did were give you gifts to encourage you to be sexually active in college. And so I'm like, this, guy, this guy's conscience is going to be in a completely different place than the lady from Bob Jones who thinks she can't wear pants. <laughs> and how am I going to talk to this guy about the sinfulness of sexual immorality when obviously it's been encouraged by his parents the whole time? So that's what happens in experience. Then, then sometimes in scripture, I heard a story, a guy, he said, he said he was a brand new believer and he was living with his girlfriend and he's reading the Bible and he says, and I read the word fornication. And he's like, that was an F word I'd never heard. <laughs> and he said, I looked it up and I go, oh my gosh. And he said, I did a study and I realized, oh my goodness. He was a brand new believer. He said, I, I'm doing things that the scripture says I shouldn't be doing. He said, so I read this, I repented to my girlfriend, we moved out, we lived separately, we ended up getting engaged, getting married. But his, his, his conscience was seared. He read the scriptures, it was reinformed, and he made some differences in decisions. This is incredibly important. And let me just tell you, I kind of said this earlier, but in the year and a half that we have been in COVID, right? I mean, let me just think of the things I can remember, like lockdowns, national election, uh, masks, vaccines, um, racial tension. I mean, just that's, that's what I can think of right now <laughs> over the last 18 months. It's like, what I, what I have realized is that now in a church, can we have people with weak consciences? Absolutely. We, we always do. I mean, there's this, this is what the church has always dealt with. Can you play cards? Can you, you know, all that. Um, but I, I firmly believe, and I've, I think the last 18 months have shown me this and showed everybody this, churches cannot be led by people with weak consciences. They have to be led in seasons like this with people with strong consciences. The person who would get up here and say, we all have to, we have to. You can't, you can't. You start saying that type of stuff. It's like, what on issues of indifference? Are you kidding me? And this is what's happening. You need people to go, listen, okay. You're, what, what, what are all the issues going on? It's like, well, you, you have to talk to somebody for about 10 minutes. You go, oh, that's your education. That's your experience. Like what's going on in our society today? What happens when you have no education in the scriptures at all and your only experience is social media and mainstream uh, news? You don't have a weak conscience, you have a woke conscience. Gotcha. <laughs> right? Where everybody else is a sinner. Where the only sin is institutional, not individual. Where other people need to repent of their sins, but I don't need to repent of my sins. Where I'm a victim and I'm sensitive to everything everybody's doing to me. And so, okay, okay, the issue here is, look, we're not, we're, we're, how do we talk together? We have to realize our experiences. We have to realize the education that we've had. See, what's interesting is Paul will say we should never go against our own conscience. And, and here's what this means. This is even deeper. I'm gonna, we don't have much time left. I'm gonna try to explain this. Basically, what Paul is saying is this, that in issues of gray, we should never go against our conscience, which means something could be sin for you that isn't sin for me in an issue of indifference. And something could be a sin for me that isn't a sin for you. Here's what I mean. 
Are you free to drink alcohol in moderation according to the scriptures? Yes. But if your conscience tells you you shouldn't do it and you do it, you are sinning. And Paul basically goes, guys, you don't ever want, following your conscience and not going against it is so serious that Paul says, don't drink. Study the scriptures, strengthen your conscience, and then you can drink or not drink. But never break your conscience. Now, he said, here's the rule. He said, the rule for the strong is one thing. Stop flaunting your freedoms. Stop being known for your luxuries. Consider the weaker brother. I have a pastor friend. He was offered, there was this wealthy eye doctor in his church, and he was offered uh, his Mercedes. The guy said, just take this Mercedes. I'm gonna get a new car. Just take it. And uh, he didn't take it. And I said to him later, he's a friend of mine, I said, why didn't you take the Mercedes? And he said, I didn't take the Mercedes because I don't have time to explain to every person in my city and every person in my church how I got this. So he actually drives a kind of a, a beat up car, you know? He's like, he's like I, and he said, it was an issue of really what he's saying is, my conscience is strong. Can I drive a Mercedes? Yes. But what would people think who, who don't realize there is freedom in these areas? It's going to be a stumbling block to them. So what the strong do is we don't want to flaunt our freedoms. Now, people flaunt their freedoms all the time on social media. We have to be careful about this. You know, especially the millennial generation. It's like every picture is them with alcohol. And it's like, you know, I'm not thinking of any one person, but with every picture is you with alcohol, it's like, how much alcohol are you drinking? It's like, if this is what you pub, yes, there's freedom in Christ to drink in moderation. If every picture is of you with a bourbon bottle, it's like, if this is what you put out, as a general, what you put out privately, you're probably doing more public, or what you put out pri- publicly, you're probably doing more privately. So Paul says, listen, guys, we want to serve the weak. The strong serve the weak. The strong don't want to be a stumbling block to the weak but the strong want to strengthen the weak. Here's how he ends. If you look at me, he says this in verse 12. He says, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So the weak conscience can be wounded. Therefore, here's what Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So, it's like, how does this practically work out? We have to know each other. The rule here is, I thought about this, I thought about this passage a lot this week. And I thought, the, the call is not for me just to go, okay, all the strong people in the, with the consciences in here, here's what we need to do for all the weak people. It gets weird, it becomes its own laws, it becomes, you know, what it does is when you're living in, this, this is at the highly relational level. How do I know, I, I don't even know who's weak, who has a weak conscience or not, I have to know you. We have to talk about things. We have to talk about our education and our experiences, right? And so what he's saying is we need to live together following our individual consciences, realizing who's strong, who's weak, and then serving the weaker brother. Now, here's the truth. Before we can even calibrate our conscience, which is what we need to do according to Scripture, and before we even need to consider other people's consciences in community, which we also need to do according to this passage, the Scripture is very clear that we have to have our own conscience first cleansed by Christ. Because I'll tell you this, if you spend any serious time being introspective and journaling about your conscience, you're going to realize, well, you're going to be depressed (laughs) because you're going to realize that you have gone against your conscience so many times. Not only have you broken God's law, you haven't even followed what you think you should do. And so this is where, the reason that people don't like to talk about their conscience is it's, it's our conscience that makes us feel guilty or shame. And guilt and shame is to the soul 
what pain is to the body, it tells us something's wrong. And we don't like to feel that. Americans especially don't want to feel like something's wrong. And this is where the gospel's so sweet. We're like, guess what? There is one person who fully obeyed his conscience, who never, when his conscience said, don't do it, he didn't do it. And his, his name is Jesus Christ, and he lived the perfect life for us, and then he died to pay the penalty for all of our guilt and for all of our shame and to cleanse our conscience. Now, as we close out, I wanna, I wanna read a, a very famous quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, I've talked about him before. He's the, the famous monk who, it's, it's hard to overstate his influence. He functionally started the Reformation in the 1500s. He confronted basically the government and the Catholic Church at the same time with the 95 Theses. And there was this moment, he wrote all these papers about how the Catholic Church was wrong. And so they called him to court one day. And it was, you know, I mean, he could die for what he was doing. They called him to court and they said, we want you to retract everything that you've said. We want you to say that you are wrong and we are right. And Luther, he said, I need a day to think and pray about this. So they brought him back the next day. And you can go look at pictures and drawings of this that they show. And he's in this massive courtroom. And Luther, before everybody, says these words, I cannot retract Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything I've written, since it is neither safe nor right to go against your conscience. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our conscience. Lord, I think about all the different people in this room, and each of us have an individual conscience that's been informed by our experiences, the mom and dad we had or the mom and dad we didn't have, Uh, the schools we went to, uh, the Bible that we know or don't know, the shows we've watched, the conversations we've had. Lord, it's been shaped by our experiences. The friends we've had, sometimes we do things, and then our conscience changed because we don't want to say we did anything wrong. Lord, I just want to give us a moment here just to just have you cleanse our conscience, Lord. We just turn to the cross together. I want to give us individual opportunities to confess, just privately and personally in our hearts, Lord. Where have we gone against our conscience this week? Where have we started to tell our conscience, shh, this is okay, I'm okay, I'm not doing anything wrong? Lord, would you give us the gift of calibrating our conscience to the scriptures, Lord? And in a divided world, would you create a unified church, Lord? We're together, the strong and the weak, we're talking about it. We're wrestling with our experiences. We're wrestling with your word. We're doing it together. We're doing it with both love and knowledge, both truth and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.